Do you think selfish people are happy? Now, I know self-centered people can make you unhappy, but do you think they're really happy? I don't think so. And I think the reason they're not happy is because they are always trying to find out if they really matter, if they're important. Because that's really where this self-centeredness comes from. It comes from this fear that they don't matter, that they're not important. So there's always this anxiety that drives them. They have this fear. And, and the reality is you have that same fear, most people do, that, that maybe we don't matter. And so there's this natural gravity in our soul to focus on ourselves so that we can find out we matter, we're important, especially around people that we we think we love. Now, as I think about this whole idea of being self-centered, I, I realize that this, this kind of gravity can become toxic. And the more self-centered you are, the more self-centered you become. And you know this. You, do, do you ever, did you ever know anybody in their 50s that was annoying? And by the time they were in their 70s, they were obnoxious? Don't look at anybody in the room, okay, right now. Don't, don't do that. But the truth is, we all, we all know those people. Self-centeredness became the default setting in their life. And by the time they reached a certain age, they just got this entitled mentality. Now, we're bringing this series to a close today. This series we've entitled Decide or Default. And it's built on this simple idea. Either you will decide to develop your soul or that decision will default to someone else. And I think that's especially true when it comes to this idea of self-centeredness. If all you see around you are self-centered people, you assume that's the norm. That's the way everybody's supposed to be. And I think this is important because it's Memorial Day. And we remember that there are people who are selfless enough to give their lives. And it's also graduation weekend. It's one of the reasons our students are singing. And it's a reminder that one of those important decisions that a person can make is, will I serve someone else? And so today, I want to give you this big idea. You might want to write it down. You need to learn to be selfless, not default to selfish. Learn to be selfless, not default to selfish. Now, this is actually part of our, our vision for people. We talk about this in terms of everybody has a purpose, so everybody needs to go share. And we believe Jesus taught us three key disciplines that are essential to detox your soul from self-centeredness. And those three key disciplines are share your resources, share your story, and then share your gifts, what God has enabled you to do. In other words, find someone to serve, and that's what we're going to talk about. Today, serving means you focus on someone else besides yourself. That life is not all about you. Focus on someone else besides yourself. Now, the passage that was read um, is this pivotal moment right before Jesus goes to Jerusalem. And here's what's happened. He has told his disciples that he is going to die and he is then going to rise again. This is the third time he's told them this. And then in this jarring change, almost like, like fingernails on a chalkboard. Do, do you remember that sound? Th that's, what, that's what happens because here comes the mother of Zebedee's sons in verse 20. 
She comes to Jesus, and kneeling down, she asks a favor of him. Okay, Zebedee's sons are James and John, part of Jesus' inner circle. Their nicknames, the sons of Boanerges, the sons of thunder. That means they were loud and proud. And Salome, who is their mother, most scholars agree, is actually the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. I want you to get this picture. This is not just uh, James and John's mom. This is Jesus' aunt. James and John are his first cousins. And Jesus' aunt comes up and kneels down and, he, and she worships. And she's saying, look, I understand you are not just a teacher. You're not just a miracle worker. You are the Messiah. You are the one who's worthy of worship. And I want you to, give, I want you to do me a favor. But you hear, you hear that disconnect, right? Jesus, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die for the sins of the world. Hey, Lord, before you do that, could you do me a favor? Jesus says, what is it that you want? She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine will sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now, she's still thinking about an earthly kingdom. In Jesus' time, the Messiah was the one who was going to come, going to establish a new government, and the new government would solve all our problems. You've never heard anything like that in our country, have you? No, just every four years. And she says, okay, I want my sons to have a piece of the pie. I, I want my sons to be in these places of honor, these places of power. I want, I want one of them to be the Secretary of Defense and one of them to be the Secretary of State. Number two and number three in your kingdom. God, I get your number one. But my boys, I want them to be number two and number three. And you get to decide, Jesus, it doesn't even matter to me. Now, why is she doing this? You think her sons put her up to it? Maybe. Maybe there's a little bit of jealousy going on because Peter is always the leader of the 12. And they're saying, look, let's get Peter out of the picture. Could be that she is coming and saying, hey, we're family. Right? We, we share DNA. So we deserve this. So who do you think Salome is serving. She's serving her boys, of course, by making this big ask. You think she's serving maybe herself a, a little bit? Because if her boys are number two and number three in this new kingdom, this new government's going to solve all her problems, what does that mean for her? Well, at the very least, it means next time she gets together with her friends at Starbucks, she can say, my boys are number two and number three. Maybe it means some financial security for her. She, she, I don't know, but I have a hunch. It's not just about the boys. It's also about her. This is subtle, but isn't it true? Parents, don't you sometimes have an agenda for your kids so you'll look better? Yeah, like my kids may not be able to throw a baseball, but they're smarter than you. And your kids, not that I'm proud of that or anything. You probably recognize the picture, the people behind me. One of them is Tiger Woods. The other is his dad, Earl Woods. You may know the story how Earl, from the time that Tiger was a, a, a toddler, put a golf club in his hand, taught him to hit the ball. 
when, when Tiger was four years old, he was going on TV talk shows showing what he could do with a ball and a golf club. Earl was his coach all the way up to college, and then when Tiger turned pro, Earl was his number one cheerleader. Tiger became the greatest golfer in the world. That was Earl's agenda. Lord, I want to ask you a favor. Make my son the greatest golfer in the world. Do you remember what happened in 2009? Yeah, Tiger hit something coming out of his driveway, and then his whole world unraveled because it turns out that he'd been having affairs and cheating on his wife and just generally outside of the golf course, being out of control. His marriage broke up, kind of real public nasty divorce. And this is what Tiger Woods said about that time. He said, I knew my actions were wrong, but I convinced myself that normal rules don't apply. I thought I could get away with whatever I wanted to. I felt I had worked hard my entire life and deserved to enjoy all the temptations around me. I felt I was entitled, and thanks to money and fame, I didn't have to go far to find them. Anybody think Tiger Woods had an issue with being self-centered? You hear those words, entitled, I deserved, I'd worked hard? Now, I know you're not like Tiger, right? None of you would ever say, well, I feel a little bit entitled. I've worked hard. Time for me just to focus on me. I need some me time. Do you think this was Earl's agenda for Tiger? Hey, son, I want to turn you into the world's greatest golfer, and along the way, you're going to become a narcissist, self-centered person. Go for it, son. So this is just a word to parents. When you start pushing your agenda on your kids, there's always a hidden cost. There's always something hidden. And Jesus does not want that for James and John, and he does not want that for Tiger, or he doesn't want it for you. And so Jesus replies with these words in verse 22. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? Yes, we can, they answered. Okay, these, these two brothers have a complete misunderstanding, even after being with Jesus for three years. They're still thinking in terms of earthly kingdom. Can we drink from the cup of the king? Absolutely, we're part of the inner circle. Jesus is talking about the cup of suffering. He just told them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. Yeah, Lord, yeah, 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 yeah. But when it comes to the glory part, do we get to be part of it? And Jesus says to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. Now Jesus here is being a prophet. James and John will both suffer because they follow Jesus. James will be the first of the 12 to be killed. He was killed by Herod Agrippa. You can read that story in Acts chapter 12. John is going to spend decades in exile because he followed Jesus. They are going to suffer. But then Jesus goes on and he says, but to sit at the right, my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. And what Jesus is saying here is so pivotal and we can miss it. So I want you to be sure and get this. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the Son of God, I am God in the flesh, and I am not even going to pick who sits at my left and my right. Wow. Wow. Jesus is saying, 
I'm going to leave that to my Heavenly Father. Not my call. Not my agenda. This is so important. You see, the best way to fight self-centeredness is devote yourself to someone else. Jesus is devoted to his Father. So he's saying, whatever my Heavenly Father wants, I'm fine with that. Jesus is setting the example for us and saying, okay, you really want to attack the toxic self-centeredness in your soul? Devote yourself to someone else. Now, even if you're not a religious person, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, this still works for you. You need to detox your soul, and you can best doing that, best do that by devoting yourself to someone else. But if you're a follower of Jesus, then you understand that this is the key to soul health. Give your soul to Jesus so that Jesus can lead you. The decisions now are not guided by you. Jesus is showing you who's important. Jesus is showing you who to serve, what decisions to make, what priorities to have. It's not about you. And when it's not about you and it's about Jesus, your soul's going to get healthy. How healthy do you want your soul to be? Now, the reaction of the other ten is predictable. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Why? Well, maybe they're like, I can't believe they did this. I can't believe they did this. I thought we were all in this together. Maybe it is like, I, I, I thought this was going to happen all along. I thought that probably there was going to come this time where it was going to come all about family and we're just tag-alongs. Maybe they are mad because they're going, we should have brought our moms on the trip. So Jesus does one last bit of teaching before he goes to Jerusalem. He called them together and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. What Jesus is telling in the first part, he says, look, 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 look at the world around you. The word he uses that we translate Gentiles is actually the Greek word ethnos from which we get the word ethnic. He's saying all kinds of folks are all about who's on top. Who's got the power? Who's got the money? It's all about who's up here. Do you think that happens in our world? Who's got the power? Who's on top? Whose needs get met? If you're married to a self-centered person, it's always a struggle about who's on top. And can I tell you an uncomfortable truth? Self-centered people tend to marry self-centered people. So if you think, boy, my spouse is self-centered, surprise, surprise, surprise. Look in the mirror. You probably have got a lot of conflicts about whose needs get met. Who comes out on top? Hey, if you are a self-centered parent, pushing your kids, and by the way, most of you say, I never would push my kids. Yeah. Ask your kids. Chances are you're warping your kids. There's a price to pay for this self-centeredness. Jesus is, is saying, look, this, this is what happens. Self-centered people make a self-centered world. 
And then he goes on, he says, this is not the way it's supposed to be for you. It's not supposed to be all about what, what you can achieve, what you can attain. And then he, he says something real important, we can almost miss it. He says, it's not that ambition is bad, but what are you ambitious about? Jesus says, look, I want you, if you want to be first, become a servant. If you want to be great, become a slave. It's okay to have ambition when it's your ambition to serve. And Jesus used these, these two powerful words, slave and serve. What does it mean? Patrick Lencioni, who is a management guru who's written a lot of books, has written a new book called The Motive. And he observes that there are two kinds of CEOs in America today. The first one is the entitled CEO who feels like they have worked hard to rise to the top of the organization and now they are entitled. It is all about I have reached the top and so it's about me. That is why CEO compensation, did you see this latest study? The average CEO now makes 172 times what the average worker in their company makes. I know some of you are thinking, I'd like to be a CEO. Yeah, but let me tell you something they, they've observed. They've studied these companies and they find out that when you have an entitled CEO, they don't want to make the hard calls because it threatens their position. It threatens their, threatens their sense of entitlement. And so they will try to keep the organization just stable until they can finally retire and collect all of their golden parachute. There's a second kind of leader Lencioni talks about. And this is what he says about this kind of leader. And he says that leader is to serve others, to do whatever is necessary to bring about something good for the people they lead. Now, here, here's the question. Which leader do you want to follow? The entitled leader or the servant leader? Let me ask you a better question. Which leader do you want to be? And I know some of you are saying, well, I'm not a leader. If you have influence over one other person, you're a leader. If you're married, you're a leader. Parent, you're a leader. You got a friend, you're a leader. Somebody answers to you at work, you're a leader. Leadership is influence. What kind of leader do you want to be? Paul Blake, or Frank Blake, I'm sorry, Frank Blake, uh, was the CEO of Home Depot. He had never been the CEO of a company before. And so he um, didn't really have a pattern of how to do this, but he decided he needed to spend one day a week in a Home Depot store. And he's the CEO of this company, massive company. And so he would go to a store one day a week. Usually on a Friday, he would stock the shelves. He'd unload the trucks. Sometimes he would run the cash register. He was running the cash register one day. Guy comes through his line, looks at him, and says, is Home Depot running a program for AARP? I, I love what Frank Blake did. He basically says, I'm here to serve. To serve means you're humble enough to do what needs to be done. And humility is a great soul detoxifier. Now, the second word that 
that Jesus uses here is the word slave. First word servant means to wait on tables, do what needs to be done. The word slave was used of prisoners taken in war. And they didn't have a choice. But Jesus is saying, I want you to volunteer to let somebody else be in control of your life. I want you to serve. You see the picture he's painting? Devote yourself to Jesus, and he is going to show you who to serve. And then Jesus gives us this picture of the ultimate act of service. He says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying, look, I could have come and said, hey, serve me. I am God in the flesh. But instead, I came to serve. And I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Now, if you're a Jesus follower, and Jesus came to serve, what's your excuse? That question's got some sting to it, doesn't it? And it should. Because if following Jesus is all about you, you still are captive to the self-centeredness of your soul. And Jesus doesn't want that for you. Jesus says, I'm going to give my life as a ransom for many. The word ransom here was often used when slaves would work outside the household, earn enough money for their freedom. They would pay off their master the price. And then they would save back a little bit of money. They would go to a temple. And the previous owner of the slave would then be there and transfer the ownership of the slave to the god of the temple. And the slave would then pay a slave fee. The slave was now free, but technically he had moved from being the slave of a man to being the slave of God. And Jesus said, I came to pay that price for you. You can't pay it on your own. You don't have enough resources. You can't be good enough. You can't pay the price to get you a relationship with God. But Jesus says, I can, and I will, and I have. Now, when someone does that for you, shouldn't you want to be just like him? If you've never taken that next step of following Jesus, I think you really face a choice. You're either fighting self-centeredness on your own or you decide to follow Jesus because you realize it's better to follow Jesus and have a healthy soul than to be in control and lose the battle for your soul. Now let's get practical couple of ways that you need to think about this. First of all, you need to see that God will give you opportunities. You're going to have opportunities to serve people every day of your life. What does that look like? Have you ever noticed the carts in the grocery store lot? In the lot at Walmart or Target? You know, they pay people to go out there and get those carts. Nobody grows up saying, I want to be the cart guy at Walmart. And I realize that these guys, it's kind of a, it's a, it's, it's a 
It's not an exciting job. So one small thing I can do to serve the cart guys at Walmart is actually put my cart in the cart corral. Takes me 10 steps. It's so exhausting. You ever stay in a hotel? You realize maids, most of them are making minimum wage. Do you do anything to make their life easy? Like put all the towels in one place, put all the trash in one place, don't leave the room a wreck. Sometimes I want to leave a note on the bed I don't sleep on saying, I didn't sleep here, you don't have to make it up. Did you know that you're actually supposed to tip the maid when you leave, leave them some money? Yeah, well, you sure, sure, of course, some of you don't know that. Maybe help them out a little bit. It's a way to serve. God gives you an opportunity. Driving down the road, somebody's got a flat tire. You can actually pull over, roll down your window and say, need some help? Now, if you don't know how to change a tire, you can say, can I get you something to drink? If you know how to change a tire, if you've got a jack, get out, help them. God gives you opportunities. When you've got a buggy full of groceries, and the person right behind you has two items. You can serve them by saying, why don't you go ahead? You can even serve them better and say, I'll buy yours. What would happen if we lived in that kind of world? We were looking for opportunities to serve. If we just looked and say, oh, God's given me this opportunity to attack my selfishness. This is great. Now, here's the second concept I want you to wrap your mind around. And that's calling. I believe God made every one of you for a reason. Every one of you has a purpose. There is a calling God has put on your life, and you need to find out what it is. It may be related to your job, or it may not be related to your job, but God has given you specific spiritual gifts that he wants you to deploy for his kingdom's purpose. What's your calling? What's God want you to do? This... (laughs) When I was a pastor in Kentucky, there was a lady named Miss Lib Stallard. She had kept the church nursery for something like 47 years. Then she became homebound. And I went to see her. I said, how are you doing, Miss Lib? She said, I found a new ministry. Really? What are you doing? She says, I'm praying. That's good, Miss Lib. <laughs> we lived in this real small rural community in Kentucky. And we had like four pages in our phone book. Let me explain to those of you under 40. We used to have these books called phone books. Had phone numbers listed in. And Miss Lib said, I just start with the A's and I go through, I call everybody in Finchville. Now I know today that would be weird. But back then that was pretty cool. Miss Miss Lib Styler would call up and say, hey, this is Lib. Can I pray for you? What a cool ministry. In the next service, we're going to honor some folks who work in student ministry. They've worked together for over 50 years in student ministry. They've really impacted students. What a cool calling. Now, they're, they're not professionals. They're, they're people who have said, this is our calling. We're, we're called to work with students. What might this mean for you? Well, it means you need to try some things. Try some things. Find out if, if this is your calling. We've got VBS coming up. Try, find out if you're supposed to work with kids. Come, work for four nights with kids, and you finish and say, well, I know I'm not called to that. That's okay. 
But maybe you are. A lot of you have met Sam Smithson. Sam is our Bishopville ministry. He hangs out in the lobby here at Loring Millsum. He's been over to Pacala. You may have seen him online. Sam 6'8", used to play basketball for Western Carolina. Started with us in February. We had one Bible study in Bishopville. Now we have four. You, you know how he's doing it? He takes a pair of shoes and a basketball. He goes up to Bishopville, the basketball court. Sees a bunch, bunch of guys playing basketball. Says, hey, can I play? Sure. 6'8", be on our team. Sam's winning people to Jesus Christ. Because he's having those kind of conversations. And because of Sam's good work, and because some wise people we've talked to uh, have, have shared this with us, we think that God wants us to launch our Bishopville campus this fall. I know some of you are saying, well, we haven't even built the building for Pacala yet. You don't need a building to have a campus. The church didn't have buildings for 250 years. So we've got a place we think we can meet. We want to launch that campus. Now, look, just, God may be calling some of you for the next year to drive 30 minutes to Bishopville to go to church. Wow. How many of you would drive 30 minutes to eat somewhere? Oh, come on, raise your hands. Of course you would. You do. When I'm trying to get away from here, I see you in Columbia. I know you do. What if God said, look, I just want you to make a 30-minute drive. Maybe stand at a door and say hi to people as they come in. Wow. That could be your calling. You say, well, that's so small, Clay. It can make a world of difference. I want to give you a chance today to really think about this. Jesus does not need volunteers. Jesus needs servants. And so when you came in, you got a card that looks like this. And today, if you say, you know, I think I need to serve somebody. I don't know who. Here's what I want to invite you to do. Text your name. Now, not your name, but actually, you know, like Clay Smith. Right? And text it to 803-720-9711. 803-720-9711. Text your name. And if you've got a clue that, hey, I think God wants me to serve children, right, you know, Text it, children. You can do this right now. Pull out your phones. It's one time. It's okay. Just text it right now. Say, hey, children, students, um, hey, I'd like to be one of the cool people who wears one of the colored T-shirts on Sunday morning. That's right. Just write T-shirt. We'll know what it means. Maybe you'll write down Bishopville. But here's what I know. God wants every one of you to find a place to serve. And you say, well, Clay, I've got that. I know what my calling is. Well, then go all in. Go all in in what God's called you to do. Um, this is a picture of a man named Toyohiko Kagawa. Kagawa. Uh, he um, was born in Japan, became a Christian, uh, was educated in the United States, was invited into some of the more elite uh, arenas of the Japanese government because of his uh, American education. And instead, because he was a Christian, and a follower of Jesus Christ felt his calling was to serve the poor. So he went into the slums of Tokyo and lived in a 12 by 12 hut. And he became a street preacher. He would go out in the streets and talk about Jesus. He would talk about justice for the poor. He would talk about paying a fair wage. He would talk about peace. And as the 
Japanese government became more and more militant leading up to World War II. Um, Kagawa was arrested numerous times because he wasn't falling in line with government policy. And he was imprisoned repeatedly, imprisoned repeatedly during World War II for not going along with the government line. Survived the war. In 1946, he had an opportunity to meet the emperor. Now, keep in mind, the Japanese emperor prior to World War II was thought of as a god. They thought that he was the son of a god who came to rule Japan. And after that, of course, the, the war, they had the emperor renounce his deity. And when Kawaga met the emperor of Japan, Hirohito, he said to him that the only way for a man to become godlike was to serve like Jesus. That took some guts. But I wanted you to hear this quote from Kawaga. He said, I read in a book that a man called Christ went about doing good. It is very disconcerting to me that I am so easily satisfied with just going about. Wow. How about you? You satisfied with just going about? Doing life? Are you satisfied with just letting that self-centered toxicity leak into your soul? What would happen if you were just like Jesus? And you went about doing good. Pray with me. Father, I know that there is always a challenge here that makes us uncomfortable. Because none of us want to admit we, we really have a problem with selfishness, but show us our problems. And show us, Father, what needs to change. I pray that today you'll show us, each of us, what it means for us to serve so that we are not selfish people. And I pray, God, for people in this room who may not yet know Jesus, people watching online who don't yet know Jesus people at Pacala who don't yet know Jesus, that today they'll say yes. They'll realize their selfishness is destroying their lives. Help them embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord. And I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.